0: Till Dawn continue on Channel 5 with Island of Lost Souls.
1: Welcome to Movies Till Dawn a new podcast that's a safe space for filmmakers to talk about the fascinating and exasperating and always unusual and never quite the same thing twice process of creating motion pictures. Welcome back to part two of my conversation with legendary writer and director John Sayles, uh, which we recorded uh, this year, 2019, in July in his home office in Hoboken, New Jersey. Um, I was very privileged to uh, get a positive response from John when I said, can we do this? Can we talk about your career? And like a lot of these conversations I'm having, they're, they're not career spanning interviews. We're picking certain movies to talk about. Uh, and in, in this episode we talk about, among other things, John's latest movie, uh, the 2013 crime drama, which is called Go for Sisters. Uh, calling it a crime drama uh, is a little reductive because like most of John's movies, it brings up significant issues about race, social equality or inequality, and it does so within the confines of a genre movie. Uh, in this case, the genre being a detective procedural. It's an unusual procedural because it centers around two African-American women who were so close uh, in their teenage years that they could go for sisters, but they've since seriously diverged, one is a parole officer and the other is a criminal. They wind up joining forces to find the parole officer's missing son, who's accused of murder, uh, and along the way, they get involved, in a lot of strange people, the strangest and the most interesting being a disgraced, myopic ex-cop, marvelously portrayed by Edward James Olmos. Um, it's very unusual. It was shot pretty quickly, it's 19 days. I believe John says he had 65 locations or something insane like that. And it was made for under a million bucks. And it says a lot about John's devotion to his art and his work ethic that he's still willing to go out there and do that to get his movie made. Uh, he is he's undaunted by circumstance, and he rolls up his sleeves and he gets to work, which is, to me, always one of the things that I find so admirable about him as a filmmaker, a writer, an artist, and, um, uh, and something that I think people who do admire him seek to emulate. Uh, we also talk about uh, a little bit about Matewan, his um, 1985 or 86 movie about the Battle of Matewan which was a 1920 coal miners' strike. In West Virginia, a, a very, very interesting movie. Again, a period piece shot for much less money than it looks like. What we talk about, though, is specifically is the cinematographer Haskell Wexler, um, who, who shot it and how John came to hire him. Wexler is a, uh, not the easiest guy in the world to work with. He was not every director's cup of tea. Uh, he shot Mike Nichols, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. Bound for Glory, Terrence Malick's Days of Heaven. He's really a legend, and how John and Haskell came to join forces uh, in this unusual venture is really, I think, is pretty interesting. Um, we also talk about another movie that I I, I highly recommend, you, you may not have heard much about, unfortunately, called Honey Dripper. This is a movie that John made in 2007, and it's a slice of life about a Small Alabama town in the early 1950s, and how rock and roll comes to that town and changes it. It 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 takes place over, I think, about 48 hours, which I, I love the time compression uh, that that he, he uses as a restriction on on his storytelling in it, it. It's a really interesting movie, and uh, and I and I think you'll find our, our talk about it interesting. Um, finally, we talk about his 2010 film Amigo. And Amigo is based on a novel that John wrote called uh, A Moment in the Sun about uh, the Philippine-American War in 1900. Again, it's an epic, but it's an epic made for so much less money than your average one-hour TV episode that it's, it's kind of stunning. It's also in another language. <laughs> and I don't know other directors who simply decide to learn another language and go make a movie and... You know, and John will learn to speak Spanish and go make a movie in Mexico. He'll, you know, I mean, this is the sort of, this is the sort of mind you're dealing with. There's really no boundaries for John in terms of what he can accomplish when he chooses to, you know, put, put his art first and, and do this work. Um, I think I mentioned at the intro of the previous episode that John does something that is supposed to be a cardinal rule that you never do, which is spends his own money sometimes. On his movies, and he seems to do so without blinking. Uh, th- this is actually something that, and I'll I'll try to keep this brief. It, it's something that inspired me early in my career to do the same. So I either have to thank him or blame him for this. Um, my first feature is called Cafe Society, and it premiered at uh, the Directors' Fortnight in the Cannes Film Festival. This is in 1995 or six, I think, and um, you know it's a pretty splashy place to premiere your movie, but uh, we had offers on it. I think Sony Classics had made us an offer. For some reason, the deals didn't make, and ultimately the movie did not get a theatrical release. It got sold to Showtime, Um, and and Showtime, you know, they did a great job promoting it, and they paid us well for the movie, but I was a 30-year-old film director going, hey, wait a minute, I didn't make this movie for TV. I wanted it on major screens. So I realized I wasn't going to get it on major screens, but there was a theater near where I lived at the time in Greenwich Village called The Screening Room, and uh, they had a wonderful cafe, and they had a nice little theater, and in a completely naive way, I just went to them and said, what would it take for me to open my movie at your theater? So they had to look at it first. They liked the movie, and they said, "Well, look, if you you know give us a, a minimum guarantee, we need to know that you're going to spend a certain amount on ads. We can book it for a week. We'll see how it does. We'll see how your reviews are." Uh, and I had just made some money writing a screenplay for a studio. So with John Sales as as my uh, my influence, I said, "Yeah, let's let's spend some of this money and open my movie." So I agreed to do it, and we quickly signed some papers. Uh, and said, we'll, we'll go do this this summer. And one of the things I had to do was buy an ad in the New York Times, which I'd never had any experience doing. So I called up and I said, how much does I figured a, maybe a quarter page size ad should do? So I said, how much for this? Because I'm going to open my own movie. And the answer came back, that'll be $35,000. Which was not really what I expected. I mean, I, I, I like I say, I was naive, but I wasn't that naive. I, I said Did that. Well, I think I seem to have gotten myself kind of in the mud here. But what would the smallest ad cost? And I think ultimately, I wound up writing a check for twenty some thousand dollars, which was a pretty big chunk of the money I had just made. Writing a script. but then I started hunting around for other ways to advertise the film. I found out that radio ads don't cost much. I went and did, well, anyway, and this is also kind of pre-internet. so it was um it was a it was a bit of an adventure. Anyway, around that time, a friend of mine bought uh, I, I guess, I guess it was Google early on, and it was pretty cheap. And later that year it was worth, you know ten or twenty or thirty times more than my friend had paid for it. And I once, I once realized that had I bought the Google instead of open my own movie, I would have been pretty damn rich. As it was, I spent probably fifty, sixty thousand dollars 60000 of my own money opening my movie, and it was an incredibly satisfying experience. I got a really nice New York Times review. Uh, I will say that I would never do such a thing again. I would just thank Showtime for buying my movie. Um, but I also will thank John Sayles for being an inspiration for making me as a young filmmaker uh, ...brave enough to go do something like that. Anyway, here's part two of my conversation with John Sales. Yeah, I, actually, my, my father, who's a writer, started in radio in the 40s. Uh. And literally, he, like he got home from the war, he lived with his mother in the Bronx... And he just started, and he still had this book on the shelf for years called "How to Write for Radio." Uh-huh, and he yeah. kept it around forever, and it's a great yeah. little book because it's here's yeah. how to do a half hour, you know, that, that is essentially three acts jammed into you know yeah. into, into twenty five minutes. Um, and he would simply mail the scripts out to Suspense, to Escape, to the Whistler, yeah, yeah. and they started buying them. Uh-huh. And he always said, like the, the 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 best and worst thing that happened was the Whistler. Bought his first script, uh-huh. and he was like, "Oh, this is easy." Yeah. And then the year went by, and he wrote twenty of them, and nobody bought them. And yeah, still and he was—he was, he was hooked. already hooked, though.
0: Yeah, I, I you know I was talking last night. I did a, a there was a screening of Eight Men Out, and I was talking about uh, being on Studs Terkel's show, and Studs was brilliant on the radio, um, but he had been a radio actor in, in Chicago. And did dramas and he, he because of his voice he did, you know, Edward G. Robinson kind of parts and so um, And he'd had a TV show or whatever But um, when I started acting with him He was in scenes with me because I was playing ring Lardner and he was playing another sports writer, right? He would say his line and then freeze <laughs> you know, and I'd say Yeah, uh, you, know, you don't have any more line studs, but we we are continuing to act here. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's not it's not radio. Yeah, that's
1: funny, yeah. yeah. Well, there, there's also a school of acting where they used to just memorize their yeah. pages yeah, with no real context at all. And, and, the, and the one that I've always loved, the story is that William Frawley, uh-huh. as Fred Mertz, uh-huh. never read an I Love Lucy script and never knew why people thought it was funny. He just came in and read yeah. Fred Mertz, which his, maybe his, was why his performance was so funny. It
0: was his gig. It was his, uh, it's about you. You know, it's what I always tell you know guys who have a, a day player or two days or whatever is that you know you're not going to get that many close-ups, but this story is about you, and you have to play it that way. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the uh, Liz Pena used to say, "Well, this is how an actor reads a script: my line, my line, my line, bullshit, 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 <laughs> my line, my line." <laughs> and that's you know to a certain extent, maybe that's what you have to do. Yeah, you know, Woody Allen. I think you know, famously, only sent people their sides, and so it's like, what's the rest of the movie about? Well, it'll, you'll see it when you'll it comes see it, out. Yeah, you'll see it later.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I love when a day player shows up and they've they've really figured it all out. They're, they're mm-hmm. they, they, and, and sometimes I find like they're really the ones who need the least direction.
0: Yeah, I I try to give them some time because uh, they don't know the vibe of the set yet. Sure, and having been a day player a lot, that's mostly what I, I, I do as an actor now, is um, one of the things you have to know is the minute you're done with your last line, and they say, okay, print that, um, uh, you're furniture. The crew doesn't even look at you, right. <laughs> you're in the way. Right. And and that's tough on the ego of an actor. I'm not an actor you know, professionally. I, I do it, but um, I've got other things that I do. But I know that it's tough on a on a on a day player because I sometimes I get good people to come in and and do something. And the other thing that I try to do is, um, Chris Cooper was really helpful with this in Lone Star. He, you know, Lone Star is kind of a detective story, and so there's a lot of him going in and in. You know basically interviewing somebody about what happened in 1959 you know you knew my father blah, blah 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 so we had a lot of day players a lot of really good day players and we had a day to shoot them um and they might be a five minute six minute scene eight minute scene and i just say to chris in the morning is so this is not your day you know uh the camera's gonna be over your shoulder for about three quarters of the day and he said yeah i can use that i'll practice that's very that's a that's a good thing to start the day
1: with, with an actor. Because Just other, so they know. Yeah. yeah. And, and so they don't feel like you're either shortchanging them or they don't feel insecure. And... Yeah,
0: yeah. It was, it was, yeah. Where's the rest of me? Where's the camera? You know, I, I, um, I got to work with Lily Taylor once and truly the only acting question she ever asked me is, when's lunch? And it wasn't that she, she didn't want to know what it was. But she had to pace herself through the day, right? And like a lot of actors, like I, I, I don't like to have a full stomach when I'm acting, and so I don't like to work right after. I say, "Are we going to be shooting right after lunch?" And it's like, "Okay, I'm not going to eat very much." You know, she, but she, she knew she had to eat at some point, or she wouldn't have the energy to do it.
1: So that—that's really what an actor's focus sometimes becomes. No, like, literally I think how to pace yourself through the day. It, you know? It's
0: about your stamina, mm-hmm. you know, and and because I'm I'm often working. You know, I've shot. I think four of my movies have been four week movies. You know, and you know, the last one, uh, Gopher Sisters, we shot for four weeks and we had sixty four locations in two countries. And so, you know, what you tell the actors is you're not gonna have a lot of downtime. Right. When you're on the set, you're gonna be bum, 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 bum. So get yourself into that kind of rhythm. Um, Fontaine Gamble and I'm a drug addict. Who's your friend? I'm Bernice Stokes. I'm not a Alcoholic or a drug
1: addict or, or anything. Um, parole officer. I had her once.
0: She's a real ball buster. Your son, he's a suspect. In the murder? I'll do what I can. But some of the people I gotta talk to, that's a violation of my parole. Not, not if you inform your parole officer and get approval. I'm your parole officer. I watched
1: Go For Sisters a few days ago, mm-hmm. and it's also a detective story. In a way, It's a, yeah. it's a procedural, I mean, it's a, yeah. it's a good deal more, but what you have to do is introduce new and fresh characters yeah. in every scene. Yeah, it's a, it's a a road challenge.
0: movie where they're looking for somebody and so you meet these people and, and they're, they're a step along the way. Mm. And so yeah, we had a lot of, uh, of nice day players in that one. Um, but the, you know, the challenge was uh, we were moving our base camp once a day, sometimes twice a day. Mm. And we were shooting in, you know, three of the four weeks were in L.A. We went down to Mexico for a couple days at the end of it. Um, And they've been making feature films in L.A. for 110 years or whatever it is now. People are not impressed that you're shooting in their neighborhood. In fact, if you're going to shoot in front of their restaurant, they want $8,000 just for it to be in the background, you know. And so for a million dollar movie, it was just under a million dollars. A third of our budget was location fees, mm. and we were up in the in the deep valley where it's cheaper, and it still cost us that much.
1: Yeah, and 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 it's it it's such a it's such a wonderful CD portrait of, of LA. Yeah, what's that motel called, the Chicos? It's like the starkest motel. Oh yeah. It's like-
0: well, what was interesting about that motel is we were you know, it's on Sepulveda pretty far up, and uh, we were trying to, you know, I, I would say my location guy, well, here's the three places that I like, because I did a lot of scouting myself, um, and we'll just go with the cheapest one. And he said, well, this guy only rents by the hour. <laughs> and so we paid him by the hour. Like, and there were girls making phone calls there and, you know, doing their business and everything like that. I think it was basically, you know, a lot of trucker clientele. Right. Um, but. You know, that, that was the LA that they happened to be in. And that, that whole, that, LA is really interesting in that way because there really are ethnic neighborhoods, even though they're spread out and so you don't notice it. And the valley, you'll go to one of those little shopping malls and there'll be a Korean restaurant next to a Filipino restaurant, next to a Mexican restaurant, next to an Armenian restaurant. And they're starting to discover each other's food, which is mm. kind of neat, you know, is, is that, oh yeah, I, I like that Armenian food, it's all right.
1: I was watching the movie thinking, you're so not a San Fernando Valley guy. Like, how did you find that? Why did you Why did you sit there? Why did you, or, and perhaps you knew it for a long time. You but. know, I,
0: I knew it a little bit. Some of it was just practical, which is that, uh, except for Yolanda Ross, um, all of my actors were there. Um, it, one of my disappointments with it is that I, I, I don't like to audition people by looking, having them put themselves on tape and say I'd like to be in the room with them. But I didn't have the money to go out to L.A. and cast. And so I just knew, well, most of my, Eddie almost is out there, most of my, my cast is L.A. based. And so uh, I'll save a lot of money on airfare. You know, and so that's why we're shooting. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Had you written
1: it though, so you didn't write it for, for L.A.? I,
0: I kind of wrote it for, you know, I looked around, I, I read, the you know, what the duties of um, parole officers were in a couple different places. And L.A. made sense mm-hmm. with, oh, oh, yeah, that could happen. She could actually probably land a client who she knew personally and should have recused herself and then decided, well, I need this woman's help now. I need somebody who has some street smarts.
1: Well, it's funny you mention that because I wondered why didn't she recuse herself early? What, what was your...
0: Um, well, she she does say, you know, I'm going gonna, gonna to get you somebody else, but then her son gets in trouble, right. and then she just realizes, well, who can I go to?
1: <laughs> but to you, when you were writing it, was it an ethical... Concerned to you that she chose
0: oh, yeah, to? yeah, I mean she's she's she could get fired You know very easily for mm-hmm. what she just did and she knows it um, and, and but it's her son You know and so and she's a hard-ass as a parole officer because she's heard all you know People hung these stories on her for years the first person she talks to you know She just says sorry honey. That's not gonna cut it. You know, um, you're in big trouble and so all of a sudden now she has to realize, well, maybe there are th- such things as extenuating circumstances. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of her clients, their whole life is an extenuating <laughs> circumstance. You know, there's always somebody who they shouldn't be associating who calls up, but it's their cousin. And yeah, well, my cousin did a couple of years, and so can I, can I, do I have to You know, like not talk to anybody in my family? Um, just because I'm not supposed to hang out with other former criminals.
1: Yeah, it, that that the opening scene with, with the with the woman who gives her the whole yeah. story, and when she leaves, uh, she says, "You're going to hear five of those a day." Yeah, yeah, and and you, then you you start to get immediately you get into the head of yeah. what's the parole officer up against themselves yeah you know how how many times you're going to hear that lisa gay hamilton
0: who played the the part uh hung out with a parole officer um for a day or two you know just to kind of get a hit on it and she came back and she said you know um they they actually have to be in the room when they do the urine sample now and i said oh that's great you know how how embarrassing if a former best friend of yours is watching you urinate. You no, know? it was a very uncomfortable scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I and never even just, thought of that as yeah, a, yeah, and and that's what I've sunk to is I can't pee alone anymore. Right. You know, and um, and I, I, you know, I actually had not uh, when I had the the first idea. I didn't think they were. I didn't know that they were going to be African American. They were just two actors I wanted to work with, mm-hmm. and so I said, okay, I'd love to work with these people. Yolanda actually had come here. We do it did our auditions here for um Honey Dripper. And uh, she had come here to read for the part in Honey Dripper that Lisa Gay Hamilton got. And I and I, you know, as often happens when you, you meet a really cool actor you didn't know before, you write down, you know, not write for part, work with them sometime. Right. you know, terrific actor. And so when that came up, um, you know, I just said, Well, okay, that's who they are. Yeah
1: almost is so, so good. And I mean, he's always good, that almost, yeah. but he's, he, he does something I, I noticed. He doesn't make eye contact. Yeah, it was interesting. He, he looks away in this like completely yeah. divorced from other people well, way, macular but he de- isn't.
0: Macular degeneration, you often can only see from the from, from the corners of your eyes. Mm-hmm. So he actually is looking at them. Mm. I, and I said, Daddy, okay, here's, you know, here's a couple of websites that'll explain the disease to you. I knew a couple of people who had it. It's up to you, you got to play this guy, how severely affected he is yet because it will deteriorate. And uh, and so he came and the first scene that we shot was a scene where they hire him in this, uh, I think it was a Salvadoran restaurant um, up in Van Nuys that we were shooting at. And I could see the two actresses at the table with him because they didn't know Eddie before this. And they're going like, there's this look on their faces like, oh. This is weird. The movie star isn't looking at us. <laughs> you know, and then they realize at the end of the scene, oh fuck, he's blind. <laughs> we hired a blind guy. Right. We just handed him thousands of dollars to be our detective. And he can't see when he tells him that, you know, oh, you'll do the driving. You know, and and there's another nice scene with um, uh, Jacobo Vargas where Eddie doesn't blink. Mm-hmm. And he just looks straight ahead, and this narco is walking around him and grilling him. And, and I realize, oh, what Eddie's doing is he's not going to show that he can't see, because that will oh, be that's a weakness. interesting, yeah. You yeah. Know? And so he just stonewalls the guy. Um, like he's, you know, he's back doing uh, Miami Vice, where he kind right. of scowled for seven or eight years. Um, but he's just a wonderful actor. And he, and he, you know, he, he made all those nice movies with um, Bob Young and they were kind of guerrilla filmmaking. And so he was thrilled when a motorcycle gang would ride through the middle of a scene or whatever. So he was he was like the perfect collaborator for that difficult a movie that you're shooting in four weeks. And he was also a co-producer with you. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's kind of like, okay, you know, anything we can get to help us have a little muscle when we try to sell this thing. It didn't help that much, finally, but, um, you know. Um, and you know, he really he, he kind of just says, you know, once I got a little bit of traction, I just tell, you know, look, <clears throat> I'm gonna take care of the performance. I'm not gonna change lines, but I'm gonna I'm gonna figure out who this guy is, you know. And so he really comes loaded for bear.
1: Mm-hmm. And wh- which
0: is great. It's just when when somebody inhabits a character that much, it's like, oh, what's it gonna do today? You know, and and, you know, that's some of the fun of directing, obviously, when you get an actor like that. who's you know, David Strathairn's another one. You know, was, I really, um, I the first couple times I worked with David, because I, I knew him a, a little bit from college uh, and I had acted with him on stage. And I, I would be in a scene with Dave and he's the only actor I've ever let act behind me. Because, you know, before there was Video Assist, in the early days, you want, you're, you're, you're acting, but you're also directing, and you want to see what the other people are doing, and you don't want to go, you know. And So you and, would
1: you would intentionally stage things so you could so see. So everybody
0: was in front of me except for Dave, and I'd just say, Dave, do something interesting, you know. And then you'd get in the editing room, and you'd be, oh, day, yeah. that was really cool. I didn't know he was doing that.
1: The thing I find cool is when you don't see what they're doing on set, you see it in the dailies. And, yes. and sometimes an actor, it, 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 and I, it's, it's kind of a phenomenon, certain actors read to me on film as opposed yeah. to on the set. Well,
0: that's the famous story that, that is told about Al Pacino in The Godfather, which is the studio wasn't that hot on Al Pacino. There were other people they would rather have played it. And when the early dailies came in, they were like all over Coppola saying, this guy's doing nothing, he's doing nothing. And then no, 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 there's something there, there's something there, I I, I feel right about this guy. And then in the other, when they started putting the scenes in order, it's a guy who freezes. Mm -hmm. By the end of the movie, he's a hard ass, look you in the eye and stab you in the back player. And he wasn't that at the beginning. And he was keeping, you know, Coppola was busy, I'm sure, because the studio was on his back and he had Brando to deal with and all that. Um, And I'm sure there must have been this incredible relief when he got into the editing room and and he said, oh my God, he even did the arc for me. He figured out the whole performance. Yeah, Yeah, without. and he he kept track of it when we're shooting way out of uh, sequence. Well, I remember,
1: uh, and and I'm blanking on who would have said this, but some director, and it made such an impression on me, said, you know, you have to worry about a thousand things. Mm-hmm. The actor a good actor is just looking at what they're doing. Yeah. So some sometimes you may have to say like you have to look at the bigger picture, but they also take a lot off your plate if they've really thought it through and if they're yeah. very creative and
0: yeah. Joe Morton did that for me, you know, on in Brother from Another Planet. I just said, "Joe, you know, you don't have to remember any lines your character is view. So you you've cut been cut a little bit of a slack there." But I'm gonna be busy. I'm making this movie in four weeks in Harlem with, uh, um, not that the crew was inexperienced, but uh, we wanted to hire a lot of African-Americans as heads of departments. So they were all one or two notches above what they had done before. Um, And you know, it was true guerrilla filmmaking. We only had $300,000 to make it. Which you had
1: gotten from your- your, uh, Screenwriting, yeah. Right, yeah. yeah.
0: And so I said to Joe, look, you know, uh, I'm gonna be busy. Um, ask me a question, but what this is about is about your character assimilating, you know, and we're gonna change how you dress. And by the end of the movie, you can kind of hang in this planet. You know, you kind of know how to act and you know how uh, pretty much how things are working here. And, and so you don't stick out like a sore thumb and you're not gonna get yourself in trouble. And, you know, but at the beginning, you don't know anything and you're not dressed like anybody and whatever. And, and so there's a real art to this thing. You're gonna to have to keep track of that. And Joe did a brilliant job of that. And I, I would, every once in a while, you know, he'd, he'd kind of say, so where am I now? And I'd say, well, remember this comes before that. Okay, got, gotcha, 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 gotcha. Hit in 19 and 20 in the
1: Southwest field and things is tough. The miners is trying to bring a union to West Virginia. And the coal operators and their gun thugs are set on keeping
0: them out. Them was hard people, the coal miners. Then they wasn't nobody who wanted to cross.
1: So push come to shove, and pretty soon we had a war down there in Mango County. Which in them days was known as Bloody Mango. And that's where it all come to a head. there on Tug Fork in the town of Maitwalk. I have to ask you about Haskell Wexler. Mm-hmm. This is one of these cult figures, these fascinating mm-hmm. people. And it, it, to me, it's so interesting that you went from uh, very bare bones and simple, and you know, you're working with low budgets, mm-hmm. and then you then you hire this guy, yeah. who not every director liked working with. Hey, a, I'm a one controversial one of, I'm artist. One of few
0: guys. I work with him four times. Yeah.
1: That's a right. What led you to him? Why did you decide to hire yeah, Haskell Wexler?
0: We, we were riding down to uh, West Virginia and Ma- we were reading, uh, Maggie can read in the car without getting sick. And she was reading Masters of Light and she read the Haskell Wexler chapter, which I had read and she says, we should hire this guy. And I had actually talked to Haskell, I hadn't met him. I had talked to him on the phone once um, uh, about a distributor because he, he uh, his second movie, uh, Latino, he needed a distributor for it. And he said, well, what are these people like? So we had a nice conversation with him. And she said, we should hire this guy. And I said, well, yeah, he's a, like a big Hollywood cinematographer. But yeah, but look at his politics. And the thing about Haskell is he cared about what the movie was about, right. which many cinematographers really don't. Mate
1: Juan is what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. And so uh, I said, oh, well, worth a shot. Well, I, you know, I think I have his phone number. And so a uh, we, we, couple days later, we get back to the o- Econo Lodge in Beckley, West Virginia, and the woman that does the, well, somebody named Hacksaw, he called, he said he was calling from his car, because Haskell always had the newest, of, he was the first guy who'd have a phone in his car, <laughs> and he said, whatever those people want, tell them the answer is yes, hmm. and so Haskell came, and, and it took a little getting adjust- adjusted, and I think it, it was useful that we, it was a very ambitious movie. For the time that we had to shoot it, I think we had once again six or seven weeks to shoot it, and 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 we had to move around to get the the period locations and stuff like that. So Haskell was fully engaged as a cinematographer, and he didn't think it was going to work. We're shooting the schedule, not the movie, you know. And and like almost every cinematographer I've ever worked with, he wants to make every shot with a beautiful intro and a beautiful outro. And I'm cutting in my head already. I said Haskell. That we don't need the beginning, start here. Oh yeah, right editing it, right, 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 right. So basically, until he saw the movie, he came up to and he said, "Okay, you do know what you're doing." Um, and then he said, "I want to shoot your next movie. You know, and I'll, and, and this time I'm just going to do what you tell me." Mm. So we we worked that out. But also, he liked what the movie was about. And right. He liked the performances, and he, and he and he felt like, okay, this could turn into something if you just listen to me more.
1: Did the presence of such a veteran change you as a director?
0: Um, you know, the great thing about Haskell is his speed to skill ratio was really great. He did not take a long time. And he understood, you know, he shot documentaries for years. He understood, well, you do your best in the time that you've got. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't gonna start painting if we didn't have time to do it. and. I was very, very prepared, and I said, "This is what we're going to shoot. Here's the angle, you know. Here's the feeling I want from the light. You make that into light. Um, and if you need more time, we'll we'll pre-rig. You know, tell me when you're going to need more time to make it look cool, and we'll get your guys there earlier." Um, so it didn't actually change it. I had worked with Michael Bauhaus already. Right. Um, it was like his second movie he shot in America. The first one didn't get a nice little movie called Mr. Wonderful with Joe Pesci that never got a, a theatrical release. And and Michael was another guy. He was the best operator I ever worked with. Wonderful guy and very fast and got you really good. So it actually didn't change. I actually went faster with these guys because mm-hmm. they, they they had more experience. Um Haskell brought some of his guys with him, but we actually had a mixed IA-Nabit crew on Mate 1. Um, and Haskell was thrilled to do that. And, you know, eventually Nabit folded and, and those guys ended up in IA. But he, because he had some clout in the union at that point, he was able to have them agree, yes, we could we could use a wonderful um, gaffer who later became a shooter named Stefan Chapsky. And they had a good time working together. Um, so, yeah, it, it actually didn't change. It, it was just like, oh. This could actually look really good.
1: So, so then that leads me to Honey Dripper, which is beautifully shot, mm-hmm.
0: and that's Dick Pope. Mm-hmm. It's the last stand for Tyrone Purvis in the Honey Dripper lounge. Lucky, give me two weeks. Lucky, got a better offer. You know, the chicken man, or the ice man, or the liquor man. Ah, damn! Ain't nobody gonna change your luck, Tyrone. Can a guitar legend change his luck. They play here Saturday night. Yeah? Everybody in town talking about Guitar Sam coming to Harmony. Man, his joint is going to jump.
1: Guitar Sam get on this train? He's in the hospital back in Little Rock.
0: Hospital? Or will a stranger that Sound like a good place for a musician. With his own troubles. Are you paying my way out? Don't ask questions. I promise the people Guitar Sam, and they're going to get Guitar Sam change the world forever No,
1: it's important not to bite off more than you can chew
0: it's your gig man this better be some Saturday night
1: this is a film that that I just love and I've seen it a few times and it and it's so very unusual the first time I saw it where I thought you were going was somewhere around the end of Act One, he was going to perform. And this mm-hmm. was going to be about the transformation of...
0: Yeah, electric guitar comes to yeah. the rural South. Yeah. But
1: that's not what you're doing at all. You're, too, mm-hmm. you're doing a snapshot of a community over a few days in 1950 of an African American community Uh, And once you kind of get into the pace of what you're doing and understanding, like Mm -hmm. that, really this is like a, a, you know, like I say, it's a snapshot of what that world was. So my first thought is what led you to South, to Alabama, to wanting to portray what those few days in 1950 might have been like, because that's what your film's really about.
0: Yeah, well, one of the things was, there. there's this legendary rock, uh, uh, rhythm and blues story about Guitar Slim. Yeah. Guitar Slim had this one big hit, jukebox hit, hit um, The Things I Used to Do. But he was not so good at showing up for the gig. And so B.B. King, Albert King, a lot of these great Axemen, blues guys have been you know, uh, Guitar Slim, because he wouldn't show, and they were the, they were appearing somewhere else, or they were in a bar down the street, they said, you know, you, you know, the, nobody knows what the cat looks like, you know, this is before rock videos and stuff like that, you know how to play the things they used to do, well, you're him tonight. Right. You know, so they all had stories about being Guitar Slim, because he didn't show up. Um, S- Steve Earle, I think, um, played Towns Van Zandt one night, because Towns, mm-hmm. Book wasn't that well-known then and Tom's didn't show up and he knew it was all his stuff because they'd gig together, you know? right? So he said well, there's a there's a there's a town somewhere in America where they think I am Tom's fancy <laughs> um, So I loved that story um, And then I thought about that um, Rhythm and blues had a very very short time on stage uh, Ruth Brown was supposed to be in the movie and died before um, she got to be in it, um, and you know she had this, this. She was
1: going to be the blues singer at the beginning, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. And she, and and she she you know had this this you know Atlantic Records was the house that Ruth built. You know she had like these hits, and then all of a sudden rock and roll came in and blew those people off the stage. Um, so I was interested in that. So Danny Glover's character he could have been a guy who was a great silent movie director, and all of a sudden the talkies come in, right. and could he can he hang with this new thing? You know, and so so in some ways my interest was in those two phenomenon of somebody who, you know, is playing somebody else and, and does it so well that, oh my god, well who's that? Um, and then this other thing of a guy of a certain age having to realize, you know, can I hang with this new thing? Or am I gonna be a guy who just stays back and says that's not music? Right. You know, and, and some guys did and some guys didn't, you know. Um, musically, uh, there's this point, whoops, sorry. Uh, there's this point where, um, Chuck Berry, uh, his piano player's name, I think was Johnny Johnson, he was the guy doing the triplets and all this stuff. And Chuck Berry said, back off. I'm doing those on the guitar. Right. And that's how that, so the piano, uh, you know, Jerry Lee Lewis kind of accepted all of a sudden, the piano and the, the saxophone kind of disappeared from rock and roll. It was right. pretty rare after, after the early 50s to have the piano or the saxophone have a dominant or even show up in a rock and roll song. So when Bruce Springsteen brings Clarence Clemens, it's like, oh, wow, where'd that go? That's like really early rock and roll, or that's even rhythm and blues, right. you know, and it's cool. You
1: know? It's so interesting, too, that he builds his own electric guitar. You yeah. don't think about the fact that the electric guitar was actually also a homemade thing that these guys heard. They heard that, they weren't going to afford it. Were they going to buy Unless it? Paul all could... made
0: one out of a fence post. Yeah, you yeah. know, it's like you just need a piece of wood, and then you, the electronics go on it. You know, and, and people, you know, one one of the things that all these blues guys say is, "Well, the the the, um, the first song I ever played on the guitar was a Spanish fandango, <laughs> because that came with the the Sears and Roebuck." Four dollar guitar. Oh, you got the music. You tonight. got the music for a Spanish Fandango. <laughs>
1: yeah, it. Um, there's a there's a section of the movie, and I think it's so it's when they're in they're in the jail where he sings Midnight Special. Yeah. And for me, that's it's sort of a transformative moment because that's when the music starts to take on. To me, it it takes on more significance with the plot at that mm-hmm. point because you go from that to the knife fight, mm-hmm. and then to the funeral, mm-hmm. and suddenly the movie becomes. The music becomes more. Uh, it's not per- just what they're performing. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah it's that's... telling you something about what's going on. Yeah. You know? yeah. I mean, Midnight
0: Special is a is a song from a guy in jail. Yeah. You know, and and, and there's a bunch of those songs yeah. for a reason. Georgia during the Depression, um, I think that's where Robert Mitchum did his time. Mm. If you hopped a freight in Georgia and you got caught, you were I was a fugitive from a chain gang. If you were lucky, you got off. Right. But you know, the, the, you know, uh, Hank Williams. You know, I'm in Georgia doing time. They pulled me off the, you know, the Georgia train. Well, you know. So, so to get around in those days, if you didn't have a ticket, you hopped a freight, and you had to really worry about ended up in jail. You know, and and if a crop was due for picking in the South, you had to, you know, you were guilty of being black and unemployed. You likely got arrested, and so you didn't get paid for your work. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was just the reality of the time, and I wanted the music to start to have that little bit of an undertone.
1: Yeah. How did you come to hire Dick Pope for that? It's a very, it's a, it's a significantly, I feel like, a different-looking film. Yeah, I,
0: I had seen a bunch of Dick's work uh, working for Mike Lee, and what I knew about them was these all look different. Because Mike is trying to do something different here, so here's the guy who shot naked, on really, really grainy sixteen millimeter, and then he shot topsy turvy. Right. Well, this guy can hang, you know, and and so we were able to lure him over. He didn't get it to work with any crew that he knew, um, and so it was a tough job in that way. And it, it was, um, you know, I eventually uh, I shot. Um, uh, the next one, uh, um, Silver City on 16, uh, I called Haskell Wexler up and said, hey, Have you ever shot 16 millimeter? And there was a little pause, and he said, I was, me and two other guys invented that. <laughs> we realized we could ream out the gate and get more information, you know, because he had shot so many industrials and stuff like that before he started shooting movies. Um, but for Honey Dripper, I realized. You know, I'm going to have dark-skinned people in front of white fields of cotton. I don't think 16 is going to—we're going to be able to do it and not have it look really— that that cotton's going to be alive with the grain and stuff like that. So we bit the bullet and shot 35, even though it cost us, you know, some money. And uh, so really what I felt like I was getting with Dick is, obviously he's a guy who's made really low-budget movies working with Mike. And then he's made bigger stuff. So I just said, "Dick, do your best. Have this look as good as it possibly can." For the five weeks, we had five weeks. Mm. We had Danny Glover for four of them. Um, so it was a it was a tight. You know, it's a it's an ambitious movie for a five week movie.
1: Yeah, and and again, it has that that uh, that novelistic feel to it. You you're you're getting the multiple stories. You're, yeah. you're in, at, but again, because of the compressed time. I think that's one of the things I find so interesting about your script. Mm-hmm. So much happens. How many days, really? If you can't? a lot happens, yeah. yeah.
0: And and one of the things is that when you have compressed time, um, there's you know is, is uh, you know, high noon is the perfect example or the setup where you keep going back to the clock, you know, um, uh, you know, and and it takes place in real time. You know? Setup but, does. Yeah. Yeah. The setup literally yeah. and, is a ninety-minute and, 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 story. And high noon, there's that that kind of ticking clock of you know okay the the, the train's going to arrive 310 to yuma something's going to happen at 310 right. you know so so when you have a finite amount of time even sicaca 7 i figured well okay what's well, a 3 day weekend you know they get there they see each other they they interact and then they have to go so i've got three acts there um you know so with with honey dripper there's this show that has to happen or else he's not going to be able to cover the rent and he's going to lose his place. So we've got, you know, we've got some time tension here, mm-hmm. um, and uh, so it helps focus what's kind of an amorphous story of a lot of people.
1: Right, right. Yeah, like I say, it's I. I, I think of it as a snapshot of that community. When when I went to um, uh, Greenwood, Mississippi, mm-hmm. and I started meeting the people who were, a lot of them were alive and, and living in the, yeah, you know the 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 presence of the police was still fresh in their head yeah. and they and they would talk to me about how absolutely like powerless they were yeah. you write that so convincingly but an interesting thing happens with um, the sheriff and honey tripper mm. he kind of becomes i wouldn't call him a hero but he's not such a bad guy at the end. What is, it's, a, it's a little, it's a bit of a tightrope. What you
0: see that. and what happened in a lot of the community is he's, he's paternalistic. Mm-hmm. So they're not in the civil rights movement yet. So he's not busting their balls yet and busting their heads with a club and shooting people and all that kind of stuff. It's still, well, these are my people too.
1: right?
0: And I'm their sheriff too, and they all know me. And we have worked something out, these club owners and I, and you know, so he's like the benevolent version of Chris exactly, Yeah. and Lone Star—not exactly benevolent, but you can live with him. Do you think he was
1: a, 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 um, the version of what, is he Buddy Deeds in a sense? Like if, yeah. you, if you really dramatize he, he, Buddy he, Deeds the, from, get, from, yeah, from Lone he's Star, he's the
0: get along sheriff, right? You know, and, and if you go along, you, you, you know, he's okay. You know, you know, and he likes fried chicken and he likes the music and he thinks the people are entertaining and colorful and he likes, he gets to call them by their first names and they call him Mr. or Sheriff or yeah. whatever. And so as long as you know what the deal is, it's not a huge problem.
1: Which is a nuanced version yeah. of And that. it was
0: wonderful to get Stacy Keach as an actor I've always loved to, to finally get to work with him mm-hmm. and once again I didn't know what he was going to do with it and it was just the first day it was like oh great this is going to be really fun.
1: Right. What was the last time you shot film? 35 or 16?
0: I think it might have been um, I think it might have been Silver City which we shot in 16. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then uh, kind of what happened is just we started doing the numbers. Uh, the first thing that happened is um, I, I had to stop editing on film, and uh, I think the Cohen brothers and I were the last people on the East Coast to edit on film. Mm-hmm. And I think what happened to them is 9/11. Their build, their editing room, was down near there, and the ceiling fell in on their great big eight plate mm-hmm. and that, that looked like the you know the bridge of the Starship Enterprise. Mm-hmm. And I just couldn't get people to fix the machine anymore because we were editing upstate where i lived in Dutchess county and they just said you know we, we really we're not really doing that anymore and so you know i i kind of learned how to do digital editing Yeah, you know, i like it you know it's i i figure out because i you know i usually have assistants when i when i shot on film who did certain things for me but i i put the reels up you put the reels up and take them down on an eight plate x number of times a day that's about an hour of time to yep. save with
1: the Right. Digital. And a good aerobic look okay.
0: The The thing that I miss is that when you were rolling, even fast forwarding back and forth on your reels, you saw stuff. Mm. Whereas when you could just push a button and go exactly to the spot, you don't necessarily see the stuff. So you actually have to take a little more dedicated time to look at, at takes that you maybe have just dismissed before. Right. And, oh, there's, there's something good there. You know, there's, there's a cutaway there.
1: Do you assemble while you're shooting? Or do you wait till
0: you're done? No, I my, I have my assistant editor um, take the last full take of every angle, and we that's the dailies that we watch, and we often show them to the cast and crew who want to come mm-hmm. on, on on location or whatever. But I I don't even take notes during it. I know this stuff so well. I'm editing in my head, so it's 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 kind of like oh yeah, I remember this. Yeah, I like this take. I, don't, I barely even look at the notes that my script supervisor takes. You know, I just zip. I them. feel
1: like the script supervisor job has become a lot less exacting. It's I I the the last couple times I've worked, I, they they're kind of not watching the continuity that much anymore. I kind of don't mind, but well, it, it's it does, it's, of, it's different
0: from when I started though. It used well, to be I much started more... before video assist, right. So they really had to be on their game then, you right? Know, or else you're going to have mistakes all throughout the the morning. there was no way to check. Um, but, uh, a good I work with Mary Sabolsky a lot, who was kind of like the you know the the standard bearer for you know uh, script supervisors on the East Coast, and she worked with all these great people and and I really relied on her as uh, you know, I've got you know a shitload to shoot today. I'm in the double Js. We've got that many angles, and I know I'm not gonna get them all. So at some point, I'm gonna turn to you. And say, We've got an hour left. How do I get out of this? Yeah, what do I need? And Mary yeah. would be drawing pictures, mm. you know. And I said, Well, we could go from this to this, and we could drop two shots there, and stuff like that. So I really relied on, on good experienced script super- supervisors a lot. I've had movies on my last movie, quite honestly. The script supervisor got the job because on her resume, she said she could drive a truck and lift 200 pounds, <laughs> and so she. And, as a script su- supervisor, she could drive a truck, and you know, she really never quite got um, eyeline. Yeah you know, she was a, she was a beginner. And, yeah. and she was a great crew person, but I didn't rely on her for any script supervisors. Well,
1: where I, where I find it it becomes most glaring is older actors are used to saying, "Where was my prop and what hand, what line?" Yeah yeah And yeah. a lot of the time it just draws a blank. Yeah, I, they don't yeah. quite know what to say because they're not really following it that closely yeah, anymore. We, we,
0: I, I have my, I really give them that, that lecture of you know, you're know you gonna have to help these people out because we're not gonna do that many takes. Right. Um, I also do a, an awful lot of handicapping the scene so that if there's a lot of business, if it's a lot of people. For instance, I have a scene in, in Gopher Sisters where I've got six or seven actresses at a table eating and drinking and you know they're not going to act you know, I, I eventually said, one of you suckers has got to actually swallow some food right. <laughs> you, know, right. you know on camera um but I just I would just try to say, okay, look, I got a lot of cutaways here. don't worry about your continuity you know if if you you have a drink and you start to drink it you know we'll 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 note that but but don't worry about it
1: but I also think that part of that is that the the um the vocabulary of, of editing and and and, uh, and continuity has changed. I don't think the audience is that necessarily wrapped up if they're interested in what's going on. If there's always gonna be someone on IMDB who tells you there's a goof, yeah, well, but
0: aside from that. If they've been watching TV and they watch the CSI show, there's no eyeline anymore. Right. The camera's always moving, the eyeline's all over the place. I, I watched one episode where I I, I had met Gary Sinise when I did uh, worked on Apollo 13. And there's a, there's a lab montage where they're doing the forensics. And I realized th- they just shot this in one day and it's used for every episode in the series. Right. And it's Gary's in the lab coat and he's looking down and he's nodding his head and it's look, look right, Gary, look left, Gary, you know, right. and it's, it's perfect for the editor and it fits any, you know, lab scene. Do you mind um, that? It, to me, it lacks a certain focus. And and to a certain extent, I'm very aware of a lot of TV shows are about stimulation, not storytelling. So I remember uh, my friend David Strathairn was in a not very good science fiction series for a couple seasons, and whenever there was an action scene, they would just play heavy metal loud. Mm. It wasn't scored. It was it was just stimulation. Right. Um, and the cutting was just stimulation and there was that thing for a while where they would, you know They would do that that little jerk on every cut and they were and the the, the operator wasn't doing it They were doing that in post um, uh, What's-her-name did it in um, the hurt locker and it just drove me crazy, right? You know, I, I come on, you know, I don't I don't need to be Jolted by an electrical current every time you cut but yeah. you know, it, it got to be a thing for a while. So yeah, some of it is just annoying to me because I'm more interested in the characters in the story rather than being stimulated all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I can hook a low voltage battery up to myself and hit a button. <laughs> uh,
1: I just want to. This has been so cool, and, and I, I really could do this for hours. I'm uh, not going to because but, you, you're okay, sure. cause you're a busy guy. Yeah. Uh, but I do. I do want to just. Ask you one last thing. When I saw you last, it was at Jonathan Demi's memorial mm-hmm. at the DGA, and we were talking about how Jonathan Demi once told you that he wished he could work in the studio system. Mm-hmm. And I think what you told me was you doubted he would fit naturally. That mm-hmm. it was sort. Of, and I always think about the studio system of 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 yore, mm-hmm. uh, that it may not have necessarily been quite as choked with. You know, with with, with the restrictions, um, because people were able to be employed so much and could work so Mm -hmm. much. So I was thinking about your work. Now this may sound completely Mm -hmm. strange given that you're an icon of independent Mm. cinema, but I wonder if you ever thought, would you fit if it had been if 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 you were born thirty years earlier, would you have possibly found a fit in the studio system? And here's why I say Mm -hmm. it. You you are a prolific writer mm-hmm. that was very important then. You're an efficient director, very important, mm-hmm. comfortable and, and and you know with actors mm-hmm. also important because they were plugging actors in who had to yeah. get along with you know yeah. uh, around the era of Billy Wilder, Preston Sturges, John Huston, the writer director it mm-hmm. comes to the studio system, uh, and you have seemingly to me limitless energy to continue producing. It's it's yeah. kind of it's, it may be specious. I just wonder sometimes you yeah. ever think about I, I that. I think
0: I would have been Sam Fuller and been fine up to a certain point, and then they just said go away. <laughs> yeah, you know, which was too bad because he was still you know capable of making good movies. Yeah. And and what you see with Sam Fuller's stuff, he was very efficient. He didn't do a lot of takes. He knew what he was doing. He knew what he wanted. He wrote his own stuff. It had a lot of BAM to it. You know, a lot right. of snap to it. Um, but he also. He purposely didn't shoot coverage so they couldn't recut him because you didn't get to cut your own movies back there, kind of like TV now. Um, so you watch some of Sam's black and white war movies, and it gets greeny all of a sudden. And it's like Sam shot a master shot and he realized he needed a close up. And so, you know, that guy was a third of the frame, and he's blown it up that much to right. get the, you know. Uh, uh, you know, I, I uh, remember when they were shooting The Big Red One, and Lewis Teague, who shot a couple movies that I wrote, had been hired by Gene Corman, Roger's brother, who was one of the producers on that, um, to shoot uh, Second Unit. But it was basically to shoot coverage on Sam. Mm. And Sam kind of said to, to, to Lewis, okay, kids, stay out of my way. But there's a lot of, because Sam handed in something like a three-and-a-half, four-hour epic, there's a lot of Lewis's stuff in there. So it was Lewis who got a shot of a guy's watch, you know, a dead guy floating as the waves come in, so they could cut down Sam's, you know amphibious invasion, right. which was probably, you know, like Spielberg and and went on for 20 minutes and they cut it down to five mm. you know, using Lewis's stuff. So I think that's who I would have been. I, I probably wouldn't have gotten to the John Huston level. I would have been working in genre and trying to do something interesting with genre.
1: Comfortable in the B yeah. side as yeah, some of the they greatest But Don Siegel The great thing
0: or, uh, working with Roger Corman is if you were the B movie, he didn't even come to the set because right. he was... He was bothering the people on the A movie, you know, and kind of looking at the time and the stuff like that. The B movie, as long as you didn't go over time and budget, you got left alone, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you just dealt with, oh, you know, I'm doing, I wrote uh, uh, um, this movie, The um, Lady in Red, for that Lewis directed, and I get this call, I hadn't met Lewis before, and he said, you know, I've got 75,000 uh uh no um seven hundred fifty thousand dollars to to make this epic that you've this period epic that you've written set in Chicago in nineteen thirty one in LA help. <laughs> you know, and I came and I cut some stuff then I I, I probably cut fifteen pages out of it. Uh, and still he had to he had to tear pages out of the script. So there's some gaps in the movie just to right. get it made. Um so yeah, I, I think I could have maybe hung on in that, but um I was telling a story about Elliot Azenoff, who wrote the book Eight Men Out. Uh, I think it was Walter Bernstein, who, when he got blacklisted, he was buddies with Elliot, and Elliot hadn't been blacklisted yet. And he said, Would you front for me? Would you go in and say you wrote the script and deal with the stuff? And Elliot was such a uh, cantankerous guy. That he'd start arguing with the producers and get fired. Okay. His <laughs> so days were over. The, the Just agree with them. Just agree with them I need the dough.
1: So yes, yeah, so, so, so you don't you don't feel like you missed a a a chance in that no, world. No, yeah, you know, I mean, it, it,
0: the, having the work is nice, but you know, I, I think it would have. For a lot of guys, it was like just being in a stable of TV directors, and they're yeah. gonna throw another gun smoke at you, and, and these are the rules for shooting. You know, I, I have friends who worked in, in soap operas, and the soap opera crews would let you hang yourself the first day, and you wouldn't make your day, and then they'd take you aside and say, here's what we do. These right. are your angles. Right. You know, and I'm afraid an awful lot of directors who worked in Hollywood, that was it. Here are your angles, and how come you didn't, how come you didn't shoot a master? You yeah. and, and you had to have some successes or be working really low budget before you got away with not shooting a master. Right,
1: right. Well, it's also I think the way I, I've um, shadowed on uh, a, an episodic mm-hmm. show and I, I thought I wanted to try to do that. And yeah. I really don't want to do it because what you're doing is essentially what you're saying, you're hosing it down. Yeah. Master, medium, over, over, close, close. If I ever work in TV. And I don't, you're you're a a session musician, essentially. And I respect those guys a lot because they're okay with getting their heads into the genre of the show they're doing. Yeah. But I don't know that I could, I have the equipment for it. If I ever
0: work in TV, I'll just say, look guys, um, I'm not gonna go over, I'm not gonna go into overtime, but I'm not shooting up, I'm not hoising it down. Right. Uh, You know, I'm gonna actually do this in master shots you know, and we won't shoot until after lunch. You know, our, our, our um, movie City of Hope, um, there's eight or nine master shots that are at least five minutes long. Some of them are nine minutes long and we were still working on film with 10-minute reels. Um, and so, you know, you you just work it out, work it out, work it out, and then you'd shoot until you had two keepers. And, you know, when I, I, I cut that movie in like, seven weeks instead of ten because you pick the take you like, you cut the slates cut the off, off right. and go to the beach. I you know, <laughs> just cut eight minutes in a day, you know. Yeah. Um so yeah, there's other ways to work, but you you have to the people have to know and allow you to do that. I thought the most brilliant um you know kind of plan for um you know a TV show was uh what was the one with the Chavney, um X Files? X Files. Yeah. They're working in government offices and they've got one bare light bulb. The lighting <laughs> on that was, it was like, you know, John Alton, one source, harsh, hard lighting, but the whole show looked like that. And it's really cheap and it's really fast and it looks great. Yeah, you know, well, beautiful think, concept. And,
1: and that was where I think Eddie Dimitrick used to say film noir was invented because you didn't have to light. It was yeah. a shadow, it was quick, They all those movies were 20 days. You know, and- what's
0: the the, the um, nice, um, it's a Clint East mo- movie that's kind of um, based on Shane and and it's the guy who comes to the town and- Oh, Unforgiven. No, not Unforgiven, it's the earlier one. Uh, all the guys in Dusters come to blow him away at the end and uh, oh, it's a nice movie, but- Henry Bumstead, who used to be his production manager for years and years and years, the way they were shooting it—I I forget if Surtees shot I think Surtees might have shot it. In the interiors, they're just letting—you the, can see what's happening outside. So they could have Playboy posters on the walls on the interior. Yeah, they're up, yeah. so dark, and only if the guy goes over to him, kind of, you know, okay, that's probably what it was like if you didn't turn a light on in there. Mm. Um, and it works for that movie, um, you know. So you, you, you. If you can find a low budget thing that's also a style, that's that's terrific. Yeah. yeah,
1: When and where is the western that you want to do set?
0: It's it's it actually um, takes place in New Mexico in, in territory in 1898. So it's a, a chase, and one of the characters that Chris Cooper would play is Pat Garrett, 17 years after he shot Billy the Kid, and he's mm. just put the badge on again. Um, and uh, you know, so so. We were going to shoot in some of the actual places in New Mexico, but we just scanned not for So we we're, we scouted down in Durango, and um, there's a set there still, even though they had a fire a couple of years ago, that's still partially standing that used to belong to John Wayne, and a lot of Westerns used to be shot in Durango, Mexico, and yeah. and it looks enough like, you know... So, so you would go to Mexico, Mexico again? We'd, go, home we'd home go down home. there and, and work with an all-Mexican crew, and I speak enough Spanish to direct a movie in yeah. Mexican. Well,
1: directed whole movies in... Spanish, yeah, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean,
0: you know, the, the first thing I learned in Spanish. mean um, Spanish is okay. It's not great, but it's okay. Was the difference between uh, vamos a hacer un otra toma, which means we're going to do another take, and vamos a tomar, which is let's go have a drink. <laughs> when the che- the crew is cheering and you're only halfway through <laughs> the day, <laughs> you know, really. What, what did I just say? <laughs>
1: If you enjoyed listening to Movies Till Dawn, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at moviestilldawnpodcast at gmail.com. You can access these conversations at iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, YouTube, as well as our website, moviestilldawn.transistor.fm. If you'd like to see some videos pertaining to the guests of each episode, please visit my blog at moviestilldawn.blogspot.com. And please feel free to follow me on Twitter at RealRDEF. That's R-E-E-L-R-D-E-F. All interview material and audio clips are covered by the Fair Use Copyright Act of 1976, in which allowance is made for fair use for purposes such as criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, education, and research.